This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Good to see you guys tonight. Blessed to be here with you. This morning services were awesome. We've been having, I want to ask you guys to pray. This is more intimate group Sunday nights, but I'd like to ask for you to pray for our church right now. We are um, we, we're getting a lot of new people, a lot of new families. If you notice coming on Sunday mornings and the church has grown pretty um, has been growing. So I just would like to, to ask you to be praying for this season that the Lord has us in. Um, we're looking into, as you guys know, with the, the building fund to get our own building and stuff. And it's pretty, pretty awesome. So um, and I'm sure you're praying for your things and you're praying for your friends' things and you're praying for your family's things. And I just pray that you would pray for your church family as well and for wisdom from the Lord at how we should continue. All right. I'll check up with you on that later. So right here is our connection cards. Those connection cards are at the back at the information station. That's what they look like. We flip them over on the back. There's information. There's sections for your information that you can give to us. Also at the bottom, there's a section for prayer requests. We have a prayer team that comes early every Sunday morning to be praying over those cards. If you have, not the cards, but the people who filled the cards out, if you have a prayer request or that you'd like the prayer team to be seeking interceding on your behalf, I want to encourage you to do that. Also, it gives us a way that we can reach out to you in the future if anything comes up or any changes happen. Uh, on that reoccurring events thing, we, we, we say that every service, but then also we have um, our men's Bible study Monday evenings at 5.30. So there will be a men's Bible study tomorrow evening at 5.30. We did take a, a couple-week break because of the holidays, but we're going to be back at it and better than ever. In the back of your seat backs, if somebody, Scott, can you pull one out? These are our new calendars for, for January. I can get it. Thanks. So these are our new calendars for January. What we, what we do is we do these little calendars with all the special events coming up and recurring events. And the big one that we're, we're letting you guys know about all month is that in February, February 3rd is our fifth anniversary as a church. And what we, we started on Super Bowl Sunday, 2014. So every year since we started, in the beginning it was very intimate because we started in our living room right down the road, and we would have a Super Bowl party with the church who were all our close family and friends. And now we've kind of carried that over tradition into in tradition. And um, so we're going to have a Super Bowl party on our anniversary date. We're going to have bouncy houses for the kids. We're going to have hamburgers, hot dogs, drinks. We're going to have cornhole and the Eagles are going to beat whoever else is in the Super Bowl. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's so mad at me right now. I didn't even look at the score, so forgive me. We all know that the, we all know that the Raiders aren't going to be doing anything. <laughs> I'm trying to reconcile with my brother Rich before he kills me. <laughs> he didn't even crack a smile. Like there wasn't even like a, you jerk, I can't believe you said that. It's like, I'm a concealed carrier. <laughs> Boom. Not funny. All right. So come to the, you just plan now. People are starting to plan what their Super Bowls look like. Plan now to come hang out with us. We live stream the game. I forgot the most important part. We live stream the game. Whoever's playing, we get together, have fun, food, and celebrate all that the Lord's doing. So that's going to be a good time. Coming up, we have Altar Youth. It started today. Today started during our second service as our youth group. Typically in the past, you guys know that we, were, we have family services. We want families to be together. But if you're teenager, 
opts to be going to the youth group instead of sitting in the main service, then that's great. We have started that up, and they can go and do that with Charles and Ronnie Trim. And yeah, all the other events are on the calendar. Oh, so I got ahead of myself. So February 3rd, after the second service is the the anniversary Super Bowl party, we're having a barbecue and nacho bar potluck. So the nacho bar potluck is going to be what is the potluck part of it, what you can bring to put on your nachos. And then we're going to have fun games and everything like that. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. I'd love for you to be able to follow along. On the back of those calendars in your seat backs, there, on the back side of the calendar, there's a section there where you can take notes. It's not a huge section. We're thinking about what to do in the future to remedy that. I was talking to one lady one day about t- note-taking in the backs of the calendars, and she said, I feel bad because I use like three or four or five calendars every Sunday. <laughs> she finishes one, and she gets another calendar, and she keeps writing. Some people are writers. But uh, I want to encourage you to take notes. We're in Revelation chapter 11 as we've been making our way through Revelation, started off this Sunday night kickoff with uh, a series, the seven churches of Revelation. And then once we finish the seven churches, we just decide, you know what, let's just go through Revelation. It's, it's, it's meaty. Some people would say it's very difficult to interpret. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that so much. Is What I would say is um, God gave it to us for a purpose. And Revelation is, is the one book that comes with a promise of blessing to those who, who try to read it or who do read it and try to understand. So we're going to work through this together. It's not as confusing as some people think. We can see some of the Old Testament references clearly that we do understand he's talking about in Daniel, Ezekiel, and, and we'll, we'll jump into um, the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. So let me go ahead and pray once more for us. God, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to your church. We want to learn you are our our good shepherd. We submit our hearts to you this night, and we thank you for this time we can come together and worship you through the study of your word. So speak to us, God. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. There are some people who believe that this is the most difficult chapter in the book of Revelation. So that's one of the reasons I brought it up there in the beginning. I don't know if it necessarily is so difficult, but what we do understand is that there's a temple in heaven. The throne of God is in heaven. We saw that in chapter four. And there's a temple in heaven and the plans of the temple in heaven were given to the Israelites to erect an earthly tabernacle and in in the future after that, the the temple, which was to be a a replica, a copy of the one in heaven. So some people will say the temple that we're talking about right now is the third temple that's going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, most likely on the mount, uh, the temple mount. There's other people who will say that this is the temple in heaven. Toward the end of this chapter, we actually read about the temple in heaven. And um, we're going to say now for all intents purposes that the measuring reed and the rod, the angel saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. This is for us going to be a literal temple. He says, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. The conversation and topic about the third temple in Jerusalem is one of the most interesting things to consider about the nation of Israel um, uh, that we that we can talk about today. Go ahead, Terry. Is that where the Ark of the Covenant is? So we do not have the Ark of the Covenant. It's been lost. There. So there is an Ark of the Covenant in heaven, which we're going we're gonna to look at. I don't know if we're going to get there tonight, but the, the one on earth has been lost. There's a few people who say they have it. The Ethiopians are adamant that they have it. They have a guy that guards it day and night that's been his job since, I think it was, it's from birth. 
but there's somebody else who says that they know where it is. It's in Jerusalem, but they're keeping it hidden until they get to the point where they're able to brick and mortar start to build the temple. But this is an interesting thing to consider because in light of what Scripture says, the Antichrist is going to enter into the temple and and commit a, a desecration of the temple by declaring himself as God or by putting him in a place to be worshipped. Uh, the Antichrist is also going to be engaging people, we're going to see in a few more chapters, on a level of deception. So the, the third temple is really shrouded in this, this uncertainty, but, but many people would agree and say to you that the third temple must be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And I was just doing some research on this recently. I don't know how much of it's going to hold water, but there's, there's this team of people and this band of even pastors who are adamant that they found out that the original building site of the temple was actually not on the Temple Mount, but was in the city of David. Now, if you know anything about Jerusalem, the Temple Mount is the, the, the highest part of the city where the Dome of the Rock sits. If you go down uh, towards the Kidron Valley, I believe, um, you go down a little bit and then down right below the Temple Mount is the city of David. And the city of David, they say, would be the original first temple building site because even when there was a ruckus in the temple area, it says that the Romans came down. I think that, you know, they have models of bridges going down to the city of David. But I think that uh, even if they were coming down from the Antonia Fortress, have you guys ever seen models of the second temple period with the Antonia Fortress standing over the Temple Mount? If you have, it's a huge housing structure that the soldiers were supposed to be housed in. And they, you could also make the argument that they were coming down to the Temple Mount. Be that as it may, the, the issue is, where is the third temple going to be built? You're not going to convince, trust me, you're not going to convince any, any Orthodox Jew that the third temple is going to be built in the city of David. I'm sorry, it's just not possible. So as much as they want to try to prove it, they want to talk about it, it'd be very, very difficult, especially for the Orthodox Jews who believe that, that the temple should be on the Temple Mount area. And, and now it's pretty much, pretty much unanimously agreed that the, the Dome of the Rock is not the, the building site of the second temple, that it was actually further north toward where the Antonia Fortress was, and that the temple, that the Dome of the Rock actually sits in the court of the Gentiles. We know what the court of the Gentiles is, right? It's the area outside of the immediate temple and the Holy of Holies that we're going to see here could indicate that, 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 is, that is the truth, that is the reality. But if you move it up north a, a, a good little ways, it's, it's a huge area, the Temple Mount. And they build it there. Our tour guide had an interesting... Um, observation when we were in Israel a few months ago in October. If you're on the Mount of Olives, and I, I'm really sorry that I, I'm trying to explain this as descriptively as possible. I struggled. I've shared this with you guys before. I've struggled with pastors who have been to Israel and, and kind of tried to, to give you a picture of it because it doesn't do it any justice when you're there. And this last October was my first time there, and it completely blew my mind. Like I can see in my mind's eye now when there's a description of the Temple Mount and what areas of the city you're standing on, I can see it in my eye. So imagine the the um, Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley. And you're looking across the valley. It's up on a mountain. Remember where Jesus used to go chill with his homies. He's looking on the, the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley to the Temple Mount area. There's the Dome of the Rock, this huge empty space, which they say is where the temple is supposed to be built. And as we're sitting there, I was able to do a teaching over the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. And when you're looking at it, she said, it's an interesting thing. Look at the East Gate. Look at the east gate and where does the east gate line up? And if you're standing in front and you're looking at the east gate, the east gate lines up with this big open space area right where they think the third temple is going to go. And if you look over to the right, it's the Dome of the Rock. 
And when the Messiah comes, the Jewish people believe that he's going to break through the East Gate. He's going to go through the East Gate and he's going to go. And in all the depictions and everything we understand about the temple, you go through the East Gate and you're able to make a straight line right up into the tabernacle straight in front of the east gate, but that's not possible to do. So some, if, if it's the Dome of the Rock. So some people are saying they have to take the Dome of the Rock away and build the temple there. But if they did that, then it wouldn't be aligned with the east gate. And, and the, the uh, Muslims have gone to great lengths to prohibit the Messiah from entering Jerusalem by the east gate. So they have permanently sealed it. Many of you guys know this. Have you ever heard this before? They have permanently sealed it so that you can't, and they've put a graveyard right in front of it so that you can't go through the graveyard because it'll make you unclean. And it says that the Messiah is going to go through the East Gate. I I, I don't know if it's for sure, but I think it was somebody in Israel told me, we we went to the East Gate on the inside. You can't really on the outside, but they have guards posted there, the, the Muslims have guards posted there always looking at you and 16 feet of concrete that they filled in um, um, between the outside of the East Gate and the inside of the East Gate where you would enter into the lower part of the Temple Mount. So very interesting things. People get really freaked out and and concerned about world events and, and current affairs. And people are always crying and screaming and yelling about the end times and the end of the world and what's going to happen. People are trying to predict it. Christians are trying to say this is when it's going to happen. That's when it's going to happen. Or people who say they're Christians or whatever. And I say that's all good and well. Okay. But at the point where they're starting to build the third temple, then you need to start taking things very seriously as far as it comes to end times prophecy. Because the Bible clearly tells us that it's going to be rebuilt, that it needs to be rebuilt. Not to mention that everything in, in the Bible is, is, is connected numerically to something. So to only have two temples in the history, um, I, I don't know, three sounds like ding, like very biblical number, the third temple, the Antichrist comes and desecrates it. And, and now we see these two witnesses, but first off, the temple... The angels stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Anybody know how long 42 months is? Three and a half years, exactly. And the next figure we get is to the days. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? Ring a bell, the seven-year tribulation. Halfway through the the seven-year tribulation would be three and a half years, correct? So here we have this picture of the temple existing, God measuring the people around the temple, but he says, leave out the court of the Gentiles because that's not to be included. What stands right now in the court of the Gentiles? The Dome of the Rock. So don't include any other worshipers or any other faiths. Just include the people that that are submitted to God and and are gathered to the temple of God. And it has been, the city, it says, has been, the holy city has been given for 42 months to tread the holy city underfoot. When we talk about measuring something, the Bible talks about measuring things is usually in direct uh, connection to authority or ownership. How would you feel if somebody came over to your house, knocked on your door, walked in, and started measuring? I would be a little offended. You, know, like, you can't come in my house and measure my wall. That's my wall. I measure my wall. Nobody else measures my wall or my fridge or whatever. And, and it's, the argument is made that, that God is saying, this is, this is, I know what this is. I know it completely to its exact dimensions, and it is my possession. It is mine. So he's saying, measure it, showing that I have my authority over it. We also see that, that throughout the book of Revelation, there's this authority that God demonstrates of his, to his authority over and over and over again. We'll get to that in a, in a minute. But then look at verse three. I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. How long do you think 1,260 days is? 
Three and a half years. Interesting. So we're talking about to the day. This is very specific for a purpose, for a reason. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the throne of God. This is a reference to a, a verse in Ezekiel. Standing before the throne of God, the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, Fire proceeds out of their mouths and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So these two witnesses are also these two olive trees and two lampstands. And the, the idea is we know that oil represents the, the Spirit of God. And there's a flowing of, a perpetual flowing of the empowering of the Holy Spirit into these two witnesses. How would they burn these lamps or these candles back then? They, they used oil. And you, you see this symbol of a tree and a lamp connected to that tree and a tube going from the tree into the oil lamp, a perpetual supply of oil that, that will never run out. These guys, now I'm not saying that they have a, a better connection. They just have a specific purpose that God intended for them. And, and they're in uh, being placed on the earth at this specific time with a perpetual outpouring of God's spirit. And it says, if anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemy. And anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. And they have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over waters to turn in the blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire." I asked the Lord if he was taking applications because I think I could fit well as one of the two witnesses. I'd love to call down fire from heaven and just be like, you know, it seems like a natural for me. I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm kidding. No, but, but we have these two witnesses and there's some people who have different opinions about them. Could be two new original guys that God's preserved for this purpose. Many people believe and say that the most probable of these two are Moses and Elijah. And the reason being the descriptions of their power and how they demonstrate that power was manifested through the lives of Elijah's, Elijah and Moses. Uh, they have power to shut heaven. What did Elijah do? Elijah prayed that it would not rain and it didn't rain. And he, he had that ability to exercise. Fire proceeds from their mouth. Uh, no rain in the days of their prophecy. They have power over waters to turn them to blood and strike the earth with all plagues. Who had this incredible power to call plagues down according to God's word in the Old Testament? Moses. So the people are saying there's a connection. Also, it's interesting, neither of these two men uh, that we know of uh, died. Well, the third option didn't die. Moses technically died, but in, in the book of Jude, it says that his body is being preserved in a special place. And the, the, archangel, the archangel Michael was in an argument with Satan, and, and he didn't rebuke Satan directly, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. And the discussion, the argument was over where the location of Moses' body was because the enemy wanted to prohibit or thwart this future plan. That's one of the theories, okay? So they have this power that corresponds to these two guys. Uh, Elijah was taken up into heaven, which brings us to our third option as well. Uh, funny, I'm reading through Genesis right now, as I restarted my Through the Bible, reading through the Bible app, and it has me in Genesis. And I did come across Enoch the other day, who is the third option. And the reason that Enoch and Elijah <clears throat> are picked is because they're two people who lived but never died. Elijah was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And Enoch, it says that he was no more because he walked with God and God took him. So the the the, the Proof text that it could be these two is a verse that says that it is appointed unto man 
wants to die and then the judgment. And they'll say that, that these two men didn't die. Therefore, they have to die. Therefore, they're preserved to be the two witnesses so that they can die, which we'll get to. They're going to die. But then we're going to see that they're resurrected and brought back up to heaven. Whatever the, the case may be, um, these witnesses are not witnessing. That's not what you do as a witness. As a witness, you testify, speaking in legal terms. So as a, as a witness, you are to testify of God. And it says that they're, they're prophets. They're prophesying. And prophesying is to speak truth. They're speaking the truth of God. And nobody wants to hear it. And as they continue to prophesy, as they continue to, to speak truth, it seems like everybody's against them. Some people try to kill them, but they have the power to blast them with the fire from their mouth. So whoever these two guys are, um, they're going to play a pivotal role, most would agree, in the seven-year tribulation period time. Not outside of that or at a different time, but, but specifically in that time that the Bible designates as the great tribulation. When they finish their testimony, verse 7, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where those where also our Lord was crucified. This is interesting because he uses three descriptive words to describe where they're killed and where their bodies lie. First of all, anybody knows that to take a body that has died or been murdered and to display it publicly for everybody to see is, is one of the, if not the biggest form of, um, what's the word? Um, yeah, thank, thanks, Terry. Shame, insult. I mean, you don't, you don't take somebody's dead body and the, the, the Mexican cartel was taking bodies and hanging them from bridges. And it's like, it's like over the top. You can't, you can't do stuff like that. I remember there was a huge controversy over when um, uh, Baghdad was, was taken and, and Saddam Hussein was, was there's picture, pictures of his body. Or when they take American soldiers and they undress them and desecrate the bodies and drag them through the streets and film it and put it all out there. It's not cool. It's not a good thing to do. But they're going to they're gonna do this. They're going to be killed. They're going to leave them out on purpose for everybody to see. And, and let's read through and we'll get back to the three descriptions of the city where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. This is pretty powerful stuff for a few reasons, but, but these two guys are testifying the truth, prophesying the truth of God, and everybody's against them. They're completely rejected. People are trying to kill them. They have power to kill the people that are trying to kill them. And then we have the, 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 um, the murder from the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. He comes and he kills them, and then the bodies lay in the street. So now we have this, this three descriptions, the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt. We have these three things. There's only one place in the Bible that it speaks of the great city as a title, and that is Babylon. And Babylon is the center of world religions. It's the great apostasy or departure from God. If you're familiar with Babylon, at what point in the timeline was Babylon originally a, a city? Do you guys remember? Where was it? What book? What book was it from? Genesis, right? And what was, ba what was Babylon? Babylon was a city where God said to the people on earth, he said, I want you guys to be blessed. I want you to, to go out and inherit the earth and, and produce and be fruitful and multiply. And then um, as, the, as time went by, they said, we don't want to be scattered out. We don't want to go out and inherit the whole earth. We want to make ourselves a city for ourselves. And we're going to build this tower and we're going to build it so high that it's going to reach up into the heaven and we're going to be in charge. 
And God says he looks at them. He comes down and inspects what they're doing. And he says, if, if, if these people have put this in their heart and they're working together to do this thing, nothing's going to be withheld from their hand. So what did he do? He babbled them. He confused the languages. And the, the way the, 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 where we get the word Tower of Babel or Babylon is that was, that's what they were doing. They were babbling. Do you know that's where we get our word? You're babbling. You're, you're incomprehensible. I don't know what you're talking about. Babble, 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 or you're just going on and on and on. And the Tower of Babel was this original rebellion against God. And we see now in this end time scenario that there is the, the city that, that it, and the people represented there are in complete rebellion against God. So that, that speaks of the rebellion. And then called Sodom. What does Sodom stand for in this scenario that we're painting? What was Sodom known for? Sodomy, the, the word. It's sexual immorality, which means that they rebelled against God. They've given themselves over to be sexually immoral. And then the third thing is Egypt. What does Egypt symbolize everywhere we see in Scripture? In the Old Testament, God says it over and over. He doesn't say just Egypt. He says Egypt and then the descriptive words about Egypt, what the place is. Does anybody remember? Is it too much? He says, Egypt, that place, Egypt, the household of slavery, bondage. So these people are given over in rebellion. They're given over in sexual immorality, and they're given themselves over to bondage or slavery, where also our Lord was crucified. So you see this picture of, of a continued, even to the, to the greatest degree in the end times, of the rebellion of mankind, the rebellion of, of the Jews against God. Then those from the peoples, <clears throat> the tribes, the tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies in three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to another." factoid of the night for you. Do you know that somebody made a boo-boo and they came out with a Christmas card one year that had the verses uh, Revelation eleven ten on it? And we would rejoice and give gifts to each other. I guess they didn't look up. That's what you get for pulling Bible verses out of context. You get a Christmas card that's talking about the people that have killed the, the prophets, the two witnesses, and are going to be in big trouble pretty soon. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now you have to understand the degree of the hardness of man's heart at this time. And, and I, we don't even really fully understand the hardness of people's hearts today. But it's very dangerous thing to harden your heart against God. And God continues to try to get people's attention, even with this whole deal with the two witnesses, having this power from God, being killed, being mocked and scorned and, and, and laughed at for three and a half days while their bodies lay in the street, and then bringing them back to life and bringing them to heaven. How many people would say, wait a second, I think that um, maybe these guys were onto something. And then a big earthquake happens, 7,000 people die, and it says some respond. Don't say that God is slack in fulfilling his promises, but God is merciful so that as many as possible will turn, repent, and receive life. We're going to see that also coming up in, the, in, in successive chapters. But notice their response to God. Their response to God is in fear. You know, I've always wondered how that relationship happens when somebody responds to God out of fear. Do you know, I always find it better when my kids respond to me because of love than because of fear. 
And don't get me wrong, they respond to me in fear sometimes because I'm the authority, I'm their father, and I say, this is what's happening. And then when they get caught in the act, and I say, why are you doing? They're like, but I, I'm like, no, not going to work. You knew better, right? This is what's going to happen now. You, you understand what's, what's going to happen, what the consequences are. But it's always better when I see my kids responding to me because of love, because they recognize how much I love them, because they, they appreciate it, they embrace it. And we were driving down the road the other day, and um, my youngest, Sophia, she's very special in many ways. But she said out of nowhere, she says these things. She said out of nowhere, Mommy, I love you. You know, she does stuff like that. She's just like, Mommy, I love you. And, and Grace is like, Oh, Sophia, I love you too. And then she said, Daddy, I love you the most. I was like, sorry, babe, you know. But, and then one of the kids said, you can't say that. You can't say that. You have to love him. I was like, Let, leave her alone, you know. <laughs> if she speaks the truth, then let her, let her speak the truth. And, and my kids do respond in, in how we love them. And I believe that God doesn't want to have to bring people to their wit's end or to the end of themselves to, to submit, you know, but, but get with the program a little earlier. That's why I'm a, I'm, I'm a love preacher. I want to talk about God's love for us. Does that mean that the judgment's not there? Absolutely not. Does that mean that, that correction and discipline's not there? Absolutely not. It's for sure there as well. But the way that I responded to the Lord was I was such a screw up and I messed my life up to such a terrible degree, but it was God that he kept pursuing me and showing me how much he loved me. And it's what I needed to, to come to him. I love him because he first loved me and the love of God's been poured out in my heart. And I want others to experience that as well. But if you need a spiritual spanking, and, you know, to be bent over God's knee and to be disciplined in some way, that's possible also. But do you want to learn the easy way or do you want to learn the hard way? These people are having to learn the hard way and they're responding to him. But I wish that they did it differently because um, it's not the best way. And the seventh angel, so we have the second woe pass. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And the angels uh, sounded, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God in their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. So the third woe is the kingdom proclaimed. Now, this is interesting to me because the kingdom has technically not fully come yet. So why is there this declaration, declaration proclamation, and celebration in heaven uh, of this expectation of something that is for sure going to happen, no questions asked? And I would say to you that we practice the same thing here on earth. You know, just recently, my sister texted me and my whole family and she said, hey guys, and as soon as she texted me that, I, I knew exactly what she was going to say. And I almost texted it, but I just sent a really cool gif, or jif, whichever you prefer. I sent a really cool gif out on the, on the, the text message um, group, and I, I didn't want to rob her, her time in the, her celebration. You know, she wanted to surprise everybody. And that would have been a jerk move. I'm her older brother, totally have the license to do that, but I was going to, to not do it. So I sent a cool gif, and, and then her picture was of her hand with a, with a ring on it. Her boyfriend proposed, and they're getting married. He's a good kid. She's finishing school in San Diego. They're going to get married in October. So very exciting, cool stuff. And um, there's a date that's been set, and the celebration for that engagement happened the day that she sent the text message. And we're texting her, and we're calling her, and we're celebrating with her that this is going to happen. Now, could it be possible that she doesn't get married? Sure. But this is not a perfect world. This is the perfect world. 
This is a perfect case scenario. Think of uh, uh, politics, not too much though, okay? But think of election night for the president of the United States. There's two camps typically, well, always. And, and both of those camps are waiting for a verdict, right? And when it's proclaimed the person who won, what happens? There's a celebration that happens, right? And everybody's beside their mind, out of their minds, and they're and they're happy, yay, we won. And the, all the other people are crying and and just can't handle it. I'm talking about any scenario. I'm not talking about any particular election, even though this is applicable. But you have these two camps. Now, what are the people? What are the people celebrating? They're celebrating that their candidate is going to be president of the United States of America. Does he become president of the United States of America that day, that night? Does he? No. Does he the next day? No. There's actually quite a bit of time that goes by until he is inaugurated and comes into that presidency. Think of this as the same terms. The battle's been won, it's over, and they are celebrating that this is an absolute that's going to happen that they're looking forward to. The seventh seal sounded and their loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty. That word for Almighty is Pankokratar, and that word is used only 10 times in the New Testament. This Lord God Almighty, Almighty God, okay? It's used 10 times. Nine of the times that it's used out of the 10 times is in the book of Revelation. So here we have this picture of Almighty God being in charge, having absolute authority, and we have this term, uh, linked to God, being the almighty God, recognizing that he is over everything and that he's the one in charge and that we're celebrating the victory that we all get to partake in. We're part of it. Kingdom of priests all together in the name of God. The one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come because you have taken your great power and reign. So the the Christ Jesus is going to rule and reign, and they're celebrating this. And the nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. I think that that last part is interesting. Um, I know some people who make fun of environmentalists. And typically, if I can tread on thin ice with you guys tonight, is that okay? I don't want to offend anybody. But it, typically, environmentalists seem to be more like on the liberal side of the spectrum. And, and I know people who take pride in, in fuel consumption and, and using and abusing the earth. But th this isn't necessarily speaking of the resources of the earth. This is speaking of the destruction of the planet or, or the, the, the original intention that God had for the planet, for mankind. And people moving away from that, kind of similar to the concept we talked about earlier with the Tower of Babel. People who have, who have rebelled against God and destroyed what, what he had meant for good purposes, and they, they meant it for evil. Another interesting thought is that the Bible tells us that God takes into consideration all the innocent blood and all the blood that's uh, shed on the earth. And whenever blood is shed on the earth, that it defiles the earth. Could you imagine over history how much blood has been shed? And it says that the blood cries out for uh, vengeance. And, and the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So mankind is going to be in this place where the, the world was pure in its original creation. And, and man has so defiled earth with murder, the shedding of blood, sexual immorality, and, and building their own kingdoms that it, it ends up turning into something that it wasn't, wasn't supposed to look like it. God hadn't intended for it to be.
Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. Here's, I guess, more of an answer to your question, Terry. And this specifically says the temple in heaven. So which temple are we talking about? We're talking about the temple in heaven. The temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thundering, an earthquake, and great hail. I think that it's important to remember as believers the the reason that Jesus came and died on a cross and was buried and resurrected from the dead is so that you and I can have a relationship with God Almighty. That was the purpose. In obedience to the Father, he went to the cross so that we can be reconciled and that we can live in communion with him. And this is what God's purpose and heart is for all of eternity. It's for his heart for us right now. And there's going to be a time when God dwells with his people specifically, intentionally, geographically. And we see the presence of God in power and the coming of God's kingdom to earth, not a copy any longer of what it's supposed to be like, but the actual temple presence and throne of God, which is pretty cool. Huh? That's pretty exciting. So what I originally wanted to do tonight is I wanted to get through chapter 11 and I wanted to get into chapter 12, but we can't stop in chapter 12. We have to do 12, 13, and 14 because I'll I'll read the first few verses of chapter 12. It's all kind of packaged together. It's kind of like the idea of the trumpets or the seals being released one after the other. This is a package deal, and we see in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and her head and a garland of 12 stars. So, this sign is the first of seven signs that John is going to talk about. But this is the big sign. This is like an overview. And then we're going to go in closer and then look at these other signs that happen. And it would be difficult for us, or maybe even injustice for us, to start chapter 12 and to do it and then have to come back and do 13 or 14 in a different week. So I want to knock all three of those out at once, which is what we're going to do next week. So we're going to wrap up a little bit early tonight. And um, maybe what we can do is we do things a little bit differently for this service. Maybe we can open it up and have a little bit of conversation or if anybody has any questions or anything, because typically these kinds of things do provoke questions. So with that said, does anybody have anything to add, have any questions, thoughts, or concerns? Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's a great question. I have no problem with the literal interpretation. And I don't even know if they could, you know, if then on the news that we would say, there was 7,000 people. Uh, one thing that, that, that is off of that question that's interesting that, that we're going to look forward to is that the whole world is watching this. And it's been said once, if you've ever done studies in Revelation, if it's been said once, it's been said a, a million times. We're, gonna, we're, we're living in a day and age right now where it's unprecedented in history that something can be happening in one place and the entire planet can be uh, uh, logged in connected to via the internet or TV. They thought it was possible with TV. Sure, it's fine. Not everybody on the, in, in, in the world had a TV at certain points in time. But do you know how many people have cell phones now? It's mind-boggling. There's almost a cell phone and there's almost more cell phones than people. I'm sure there are for sure now more cell phones on earth than there are people. And the ability to tune in and watch these events happening, whether it be the two witnesses' bodies laying in the streets or the 7,000 that, that are in Jerusalem. I would say both, Bethany. I would say it's possible for, for literal, but there's definitely connection to the completion of what God's doing. Remember, this is Jacob's trouble. This is the people of God accepting or buying into the Antichrist's lies, which many people believe that the building of the third temple is going to be by the Antichrist, making some kind of deal with him. And God is going to have to deal with their 
idolatry, even if it's for one man. And that's another reason these next three chapters are so important because we're introduced to the Antichrist. The, 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 we're introduced to Satan. We're introduced to the Antichrist who he is influencing. And we're, we're, intru- we're introduced to the false prophet who has these powers from the devil and, and, and deceive people into buying into this is the real deal when it's really not. So I guess that's a roundabout way to say I think it's a completion thing as well. Anybody else? Thoughts? All right. That's what I was hoping for. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we, we love you and we ask that you would give us, give us understanding with these things. We know that, that you don't want us to operate in fear. You don't want us to get upset about the future. You don't want us to have angst. We don't want to be ashamed at your appearing, so we want to be ready. We, we want to um, take all of this in that you have for us. There's a purpose and reason that you gave it to us. And we just ask that you'd help us uh, digest it, process it, ask questions, and, and seek you, knowing that you're a good God. You're not doing this judgment of the world or the judgment of people or the nation of Israel out of spite. You're, you're, you're doing it out of necessity because it, it's been a long time coming and you're giving us every opportunity to respond. You're giving this world. We've responded and we want to continue to responding to the prompting and leading of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, God, that you would save many, that the days that we live in look very dark and people are very uh, afraid of what tomorrow holds. May that not be the case with your church. May we stand out and be the salt and the light of the world and our confidence to be in you so that many could be led to righteousness. Many can be led to to your son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. So we love you, Father. I pray that you bless my brothers and sisters this week and encourage them as we head headlong into this new year. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.